Welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Steph Fairbairn. Thank you for joining us as we get insights and ideas from coaches working across the game to help you develop into the coach you want to be. This episode, I speak to Connor McGinn, a 21-year-old soccer coach based in the UK. Connor is both FA Level 2 qualified and undertaking a degree in football coaching. He has spent time coaching at grassroots development centres and academies, mainly with children between the ages of under six and under eight. Through all of that, he's found a passion for coaching in the foundation phase. I caught up with him to talk about what the foundation phase means to him, how we create the right environment at the foundation phase, the technical skills we should be coaching, and how we can help our players shape their session. Connor, welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's it's a pleasure to have you. And I know we're going to get into talking a bit about foundation football and the foundation phase. But before we get there, do you want to tell the listeners um, a bit more about you and your coaching journey? Yeah, so um, I'm 21 now. I've been coaching since I was 19, so two years. Um, I'm a third year student in a degree program for football coaching. Um, I've previously coached at academies, development centres and grassroots. So a range of experiences from under sixes all the way to under 10. So really a broad range of the foundation phase. So what is it about the foundation phase that appeals to you so much? Or what is it that you think is so important about that phase? Um, Well, first, I think it's key in the word foundation. You're laying the foundations for what these children's journey is going to be for the rest of football. So I think you need to ensure, one, they're learning the key skills, the foundations, um, and two, it's love of the game. You'll have plenty of kids who will have certain coaches who will coach kids at this age like they're not kids at this age, forgetting that they're seven and eight-year-olds, and their love of the game is shot for the rest of their lives. So ensuring they just keep loving football is so important at that age. And it's it's that love of football and that desire to learn that I love at this age. There's there's no pleasure like it. So I guess, yeah, let's carry on for a second with the with the love of football. Um, and I recognize what you're saying about some coaches, uh, maybe coaching players like like they aren't kids. And um there's a the whole argument about, you know, the environment we see in the Premier League, for example, is obviously not the environment <laughs> that's right for for kids. So how can we go about creating an environment that is right for kids at that stage and that fosters that love of the game um I think it's important to always remember that they're that age even within academy setups that I've worked in I think it's important to remember that yes it's an academy setup yes you'll have a professional club's badge on but these are seven-year-olds eight-year-olds their operating capacity is that of a seven-year-old and eight-year-old so I think one it's important to adjust your language and adjust your coaching so if you're trying to get across key technical detail you need to do it in a way that they'll understand. I've seen coaches who rock up and will just shout movement and press at six-year-olds who've never heard these terms before and they're expected to know them. You introduce press as chase or hunt. Those are words that those children understand. And so you're almost alleviating that process of understanding. Same with space and movement. Those terms need to almost be explained. They're not just automatically understood by six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. And so I think that's a key thing. Euphemism, big one. So for instance, when I've coached shielding before and using your body, coach it to them as you're actually using a shield, like a knight. That's something they can put in their heads. That's something they understand and they love that. 
So I think it's it's so important to remember their children and then think, okay, what what did you understand as a child? If you've got kids yourself, what do they respond to? And always remember that they're children first, even before they're footballers. You need to operate on that level. Yeah, I like that. And I feel like actually sometimes what can happen is you can go too far the other way. So you think press, oh, that might be too too confusing. So you don't even approach it at all, actually. Um, but what are the key things then that you think need to be approached in this um, in this phase? I suppose first from a technical and then from a tactical point of view. So I think it's always important to have some kind of programme or thought in mind. So it doesn't have to be a very fancy periodised programme or syllabus. But having in mind six, seven, five key things you think children at this age need to learn in order to progress to the next phase. So with my lads, it's scanning, defending, uh, which would include pressing, dribbling, passing, finishing, and the last one has escaped me. Um, But having those kind of key elements that you look to and you go, okay, I have six, I have six key things. I think children at this age need to learn. Receiving was the other one. Six key things that children at this age need to learn. That stops a concept called firefighting, which is you'll have a training session. You'll then have a match. The kids will do poorly in one area in that match. Let's say their passing is poor in that match. The next training session you'll work on passing and then their passing will be good but they'll lack in something else then you go on to that and it's almost you're just fighting what's in front of you and you're forgetting anything long term so having a key plan that you stick to it doesn't have to be formal it can even be notes on your phone where you go okay i've got these six key areas i'll do them in two three week blocks so you do two three weeks of training on passing two three weeks on dribbling two three weeks on receiving helps keep it in a you know a continuous way of development so you're not just fighting against how kids react on match days you're continuing their proper development and what would you say to coaches about because i think um part of working with kids is is understanding the learning journey and and one week they'll get something and the next week it'll look like they've never seen it before and and they'll go kind of up up and down with that and I think sometimes the firefighting that you're speaking about can sometimes come (laughs) from a bit of panic about that so what would you say to coaches about how kids do learn and and progress and what their learning journey is? I'd always say and I think a big problem related to this is is looking at match days now match days should always be seen at this age as just an example to show off what they've learned an example for them to learn the results and individual performances week by week not consistently are of little importance and I think match days naturally because what you were speaking about earlier in terms of football is often top down so you look at what you see on the Premier League and the top level and match days being the priority and then it almost trickles down to a point where you think okay match days are it at seven and eight matches are for kids to love kids to learn but what happens on that match day is never really consistently reflective of training so i'd say don't let match days affect your training so if you're if you're consistently thinking okay here are the five things i want to work on with my foundation phase kids that i think they need to learn before they move up to the next age group don't let match days change what those five things are you might see things on match days that they're not doing and it could destroy your whole program. So it's ensuring that you almost keep yourself checked, that you're above just going week to week, no consistency. And I suppose sticking with match days then, what what does good behaviour for coaches look like 
on match days when players are in the foundation phase? So I have certain opinions on this. Um, I'm of the view that instruction should be really low. So positive encouragement, praise really, really should be high from a coach. But specific instructions, I've seen coaches walk their children through games. Now, there's problems with that. One, you might be shouting instruction at a child that one, they already know, or two, they're taking an action that could be better than that. I think it's very easy to undervalue the creative abilities of children. So you might shout, shoot or pass. They'll dribble, cut inside, put it in the bottom corner. And suddenly they've taken an action that you thought almost arrogantly that they shouldn't have taken. The other thing is that if you're constantly walking them through the game with instruction, they're never developing as decision makers. They're just a vessel for you as a coach. And you are making children that are not going to be able to replicate that in any other environment. So that, that would be my match day practice is low instruction, very high praise and encouragement. There are obviously also things that are you know completely wrong to do. For instance, treating it like it's a Premier League game, shouting at kids, screaming at kids. I think parents is another key thing. If you are a coach and you have qualifications and you have a certain understanding and you have parents who are on the other side, you can't let them shout instructions. So let's say, for instance, I was to shout at you a sequence of numbers. I would have another person next to me shouting a sequence of numbers and I would ask you to remember my sequence. You wouldn't be able to because you're being overloaded with information. So if there are to be instructions, it needs to come from one source. So I'd say parents, huge part of match days, get them involved, talk to them, make sure that they're not going against what you're saying, make sure it's a praise only environment. And then with yourself, set that example. And just Touching back on your, you know, five or six key areas, classic coaching question here. Um, what about mixed abilities within those areas? How do you deal with that? So I think that's interesting um, in terms of I've coached at grassroots all the way to pre-academies and academies where, you know, and development centres as well, where you have a much tighter range of abilities. I'd say at grassroots, it's it's a real trouble. I think You've always got to remember that a grassroots, you're a volunteer. And I think I have seen some grassroots push themselves too much. I think it's always important to remember that, again, it comes back to match days. You might want to always put out your best lads, get equal involvement because it's not about winning. It's not about you at this age. It's about ensuring there's love of the game. You might want to think about, okay, if you have, say, four children of a lower level, five of a higher level, if you're blessed with an assistant, you can divide them up. You can challenge people in different ways. I'd also say coach as an individual. So if you see a child who's, you know, of a certain mindset, of a certain ability, try and adapt yourself to that. So if you have a child who's low on confidence and is making certain actions, you might want to, instead of, you know, correcting them, you might want to just fill them with confidence, go over to them, get at their level, talk about, okay, that was that bit was really good. So you did all of this really good. You were just missing that last bit. So let's focus on that last bit. Different children need different things and you're never going to raise them all up to that level. So I set expectations to a realistic stage, but always try your best to think how with this specific child as an individual, can I help them grow within their own ability? And on that point, I suppose about talking to children, how much do you think we should be listening to children's feedback on sessions, what they want from sessions, the kind of activities they like, and essentially letting them shape um, our practice a little bit more? 
again, like a lot of things, it's a balancing act. Um, if, if, if you've ever coached seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds, their first question is, when are we playing a match? Um, if you were to just play a match every week without any constraints, you're getting a lot of chaos, which can be beneficial to their learning. But equally, you're getting an activity where their touches, for instance, it's five-a-side, will be a lot less than a two-on-two activity or a three-on-three activity. Um, generally, smaller groups, more touches, higher ball rolling time, massively beneficial for kids. If you're just playing a match each week, they're learning something, but there's lots of key things that because of lack of constraints or different practices to bring out different things, they're missing lots of stuff. So you can't just go completely off what kids want or even what adults want. But having said that, when you do an activity, no matter how good you think it is in your mind, if the kids aren't enjoying it, what they're getting out of it technically is going to be a lot lower. There needs to be a certain level of enjoyment, even as an adult. If, I, if I'm playing football and I'm doing some kind of activity, if I'm not enjoying it, I know as an adult I'm getting less out of it. That's even more at the younger ages and foundations. So track enjoyment's a massive thing. Take feedback at the end of the session. If their only feedback is, I wish it had been a match, that's one thing. But if their feedback is, oh, coach, that went on for a bit too long, or coach, you know, oh, I wish there'd been a goal at the end of that activity, take that on. Because if you're working with them to make them happier, they'll give that back in technical learning. And what's your take on, so I, um, I suppose, so I'm of a generation as, as a female. When I played football, it was because I absolutely loved football, wanted to get into the game. And kind of when I was growing up to be a girl playing, you had to be that. Now we have a lot of kids that are that absolutely love football and play. But now we have a lot of kids that just see football as an option, as a sports option. They're not necessarily immersed in it outside of outside of, you know, whether it's PE or whether it's um, a club that they go to. What's your take on how much these players need to actually know about the game or need to be immersed in that side of it and how much we can rely on that or how much we need to cater for that in in coaching? It's again, I think it comes back to your questions around grassroots versus, you know, development academy, the other end of the spectrum. At the development academy level, if you don't love football, it's it's not going to work. The level of commitment and, you know, concentration in training is higher than you'd be expected at that age, you know, in a purely fun environment. So if you're an academy player and you're training three times a week, maybe you're traveling to do so, you're driving half an hour, 40 minutes from your home to you know, a Birmingham or a London, you need to love the game in order to do that. If you don't love the game, you, you've got a question, is that coming from the parents? Is that coming from the child? At grassroots level, I think we can accept that just like, I think we have a culture in England because football is the highest level of sport that we expect every child to absolutely be in love with it. However, there's cricket, there's rugby, there's lots of other sports, table tennis, badminton, tennis. You know, there's a whole plethora of sports that are out there. A child's interest might not be in sport at all. They might be in football because they like the casual side of it. They might not be interested in developing at grassroots they might just be there for fun and you almost have to accept that at grassroots and so you tailor it to what do they want to get out of it if they're just there for fun and they're not disrupting a session let them be there for fun it's it's all about the fact that these children are are individuals they're people and they all want different things out of it at academy or development there's 
a greater level of homogeny around they're all there to learn they're all in love with the game and they need to be at grassroots you have a whole spectrum so you almost have to tailor that and again if you have a really good assistant you can divide into smaller groups um, maybe that child doesn't want to play on match days maybe they're just there to train and again if you're putting on sessions that are just development and have no fun to them that's a question you need to ask yourself as well no nine-year-old isn't there for fun as well they everyone loves fun so big question here but obviously you know you've spoken about age groups and that's the way um that football works um in, in a lot of countries around the world do you necessarily agree with that or because kids come in all different shapes and sizes all different ability levels do you think we should still be running to age groups or should we be a bit more flexible with that in order to maybe group in in ability and then allow for more progress so it's a really interesting debate at the moment when you look at say you have chronological age which is you know your birth date then you have your biological age you have your social age you have your psycho age um you know it, it's it's very interesting i think at grassroots level it's a bit more precarious um i think there's only so much you can expect from grassroots clubs when people are volunteers. I think chronological aging is pretty simple. At academies and development centres, it's, it's, it's a whole different thing. I certainly think as you, maybe not in the foundation phase, but certainly as you enter the youth development phase, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, and the rates of maturation are so broad, I remember, so I was a very late maturating child. I really, when I was 16, looked like I was 12. Now I was 11 playing against people with full beards. And that's mental when you've got, really, if you're in that teenage phase, you can look four years either way. So I do think it is a really interesting one. I certainly think with biobanding, which is something that's risen a lot, where say you'll have a child that's slow maturating so it means they're you know physically maturing at a slower rate that doesn't mean when they're an adult they'll be smaller necessarily or less developed than another it just means they're developing slower so by putting them down an age group chronological age and then they're with children who are of a similar physique it can help them grow because if you say have a child that's slowly maturating you're putting them with kids their own chronological age but who are realistically two years older biologically suddenly that's going to affect their game their technical side isn't going to stand out because they're just being battered off the ball every time it's another interesting thing with talent identification for academies when you look at psychological age and certain factors that lead into that i remember on my level two talent id we were looking at children who come from working class backgrounds that care for younger siblings normally have a faster psychological rate of development so that's an interesting thing. Are they potentially a better learner because they've learned to care for other people? So really interesting things. And I do think the future of academies and academies that have the facilities to track and, you know, analyse psycho age, social age, physical age, that the future is banding children by those rather than just when is your birth date? I'm going to flip it then to the um, older age groups I'm probably going to ask you to speculate here but um, as an example with following the women's Euros I've seen a lot of um, women that I've never kicked a ball in their life want to get involved in the game um, and I'm playing alongside some of them and I would argue that they're at the foundation phase obviously not 
in age but in terms of skill and and um yeah in terms of skill and tactics and what do you think about how much there is potential to learn I suppose once you are you know in your 30s 40s 50s and you and you start playing and you actually don't have any of the fundamentals what's the potential for you to learn there and have you got any tips for coaches working with um players of that age who are just starting out really interesting so I won't name them but I was on a course recently um with a woman who's a coach at a club and she's in that exact scenario where she has a group about half she's got about four players that are development players girls who are you know very high level and then she's got about a group of five six who are at a quite a typical level for their age and then you've got about four or five who through recent events and the rise in women's football have joined and as you say never kicked a ball before so they're at a relative foundation phase level going into a, a scenario where you've got girls who are not only at that relative level but who are above it and so that's a real real difficulty for coaches and I think specifically for the women's game in terms of with men's football um, men's football has been blessed with quite a consistent level of support and funding and various other factors over the years with women's football that's rightfully rising right now Um, so again it comes from top to bottom if you see people on the tv that look like you you see people who look like you doing inspiring things whether that be the same race as you the same gender the same sexuality you're naturally going to be inspired and so we are witnessing a really strong wave of young girls coming into sport now that's one thing at foundation phase Um, at foundation phase if you get girls and boys young enough um, with the right coaches that's one thing and you know Wildcats is a brilliant program for that some girls don't want to be with boys some girls want to be with other girls and so having those at the foundation phase is brilliant but as you say there's the trouble of 14 15 year old girls who've never kicked a ball feeling inspired going into grassroots setting with girls who've played for 10 years longer now that's that's a real challenge I do wonder if potentially there's going to be FA programs coming up And again, you asked me to speculate where they'd go more of a social football side. So there's plenty of social football programmes for men, older men in particular, walking football for people who don't want to play competitively, but just want to almost adjust or readjust themselves back into a a fun game. And I wonder if there are programmes for that for girls that would emerge, because I know from speaking to women who coach in the game, who are coaching essentially people with a playing age of eight, and people with a playing age of 18 in the same session, yet they're chronologically the same age. Again, I think having a, an assistant works really well. If you can have two, three coaches, which is you know, a rarity and a blessing at grassroots, you can divide girls up, you can challenge them in different ways, you can put them against each other in ways that are suitable. Uh, ladder activities are a great one where you'll have a set of activities and if you win one, you go up. If you lose, you go down. Again, it's keeping them within relative abilities. But it is it is a, a very unique challenge. Um, and I do wonder what the FA is going to do next to help it. I would say as well for anyone listening, just because I'm facing that challenge at the minute. Um, you can identify a key strength in everyone, actually, mm-hmm. even if someone is has a playing age of eight and they're playing against someone with a playing age of, you know, 16. The, the, the 16 might strike a ball much better, but actually the, the playing age of eight will have that one thing that you can say, mm-hmm. whoa. And everyone could learn from them. And I think you can pull pull people together that way. Um, something I've found works a little bit. 
that's fascinating because at, at the early ages we always look for a super strength which mm. is you look for one really really key ability and then you help build on that and round around it so if you have a child who's a really good dribbler you don't want to just say to them okay you want to pass lots three touch two touch which a lot of coaches do you want to build on that super ability and as you say it can be the same older age groups when they're just coming in and just following on that super strength thing actually um if we're thinking about uh matches and formations and stuff and you know we've all got preferred formations we'll all come in like oh this is the you know this formation I want to play and this is the style I want to play but actually should we be um I'm sure I know your answer to this already but should we be building our formations based on our players strengths and giving them the opportunity to um express themselves and and use their strengths it's very interesting so I have an under eight team at the moment but because of their ability play up with group so they play seven aside now again I think it comes top down in the sense that you'll see and I think this also comes from the rise of the internet and also FIFA and various video games with the likes of Athletic and TIFO and various tactical YouTube channels as well as FIFA the knowledge of formations and tactics and you know positions rising a lot especially with young kids a young child will, you know, can tell you what a defensive midfielder is and what a, a winger is and what a fullback is because of FIFA and because of access to the internet. And so I think that's that's a key thing. I also think we shouldn't get lost in pigeonholing kids. So I've tried out two things at this age. I've tried out completely randomizing positions, which I think is beneficial to adding versatility to children, but it can confuse them. Or what I'm doing now is blocks. So we'll do, say, a four week block of matches. And in that four week block, each child will be assigned two positions. And then the next four week block, they'll be assigned two more positions. And so they're learning different positions, but in a more controlled, consistent way. That idea came from my assistant. So, again, if you get yourself a really good assistant, your life's much easier. Um, but, yeah, I think I think it's one of those things where if you've got seven year olds, eight year olds, you're playing seven aside think about what formation is going to help them teach the most about football is going to be most tailored to them and isn't going to be about winning you the game. So you might go, okay, we're coming up against a really good side. We're going to go four at the back, one at the top. We're going to hoof it long. By doing that, you might win the game, but you're bypassing 80% of football. You're bypassing everyone from the goalkeeper to the striker. And so all of those learning opportunities that would have come are completely missed out. So if you are going to put them in a certain formation, which obviously I encourage you to do, do it in a way that's most beneficial to your child, that will teach them, you know, roles, that will teach them responsibilities, that will teach them how to communicate and interact with each other, and will be for the benefit of getting the most out of the children on the pitch, not the most on the scorecard. Look, Connor, I could ask you a million more questions, and I would I would love to, but just, just to wrap, wrap this podcast up for now, um, have you got a key takeaway that you hope anyone listen, listening to this goes away and thinks about? Small groups, high ball rolling time is my main advice. If you can get an assistant and you have a group of 10, you can divide them into two groups of five. Um, get them on the ball as much as possible, even in a passing activity or something not to do with dribbling or individual ball mastery. Get them on the ball as much as possible. If you have high ball rolling time, they're learning from that. Um, make sure you have clear ideas of what you want them to learn. Make sure that's consistent throughout a season rather than just going game to game. 
and ensure that they're on the ball learning as much as they can, make it fun, make it enjoyable and remember their kids. That was the voice of Connor McGinn. Thanks to Connor for his time and sharing his thoughts. And thanks to you for listening to the Soccer Coach Weekly podcast. For more from us, join us again next time or visit soccercoachweekly.net for practice plans, advice, interviews and much more. I'm Steph Fairbairn. See you again soon.